To 27,000 adults in Washtenaw County, this is what street signs, magazines, books, and maps say. But you can help by becoming a volunteer at Washtenaw Literacy. We are training volunteers now. Call 769-0099 for more information and to sign up. Help the world become clearer for Washtenaw County. Now look at Michigan's growth. Based on April 1990 population estimates, the number of Latinos living in Michigan this time she cried and failed to wait for this time. Oh, I've heard them all. No mercy shown. Stop. One way. Hill Street. No shirt, no shoes, no service. In 1970, Ralph Hooter and Florian Schneider formed a band called Power Station and released their first album entitled Kraftwerk. And so a major branch on the Tree of Rock was formed. My name is Tony, and it would be great if you would join me in a one-hour study of the music of Ralph and Florian and friends. Listen to Kling Clang is on the air, Sundays at 5 p.m. on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. at 7 p.m. every Monday evening for Yazoo City Calling, an hour-long show of blues roots music from the early half of the 20th century. Your rotating hosts include myself, Morgan Drake, and the show's creator, Jerry Mack. Come check it out. Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters. It's another Monday evening on a particularly lovely day here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Just about perfect weather, I must say. And uh, my name is Jim Dwyer. I'll be uh, doing the program tonight. And as promised last week, uh, we will be uh, digging deep and revisiting some of the highlights and or lowlights of the Richard Nixon White House tapes, an ongoing tribute, if you will, to the uh, legendary performances of the only president in American history to resign office, Richard Milhouse Nixon. And, of course, uh, it's 40 years ago in 1973 that uh, the poo-poo hit the fan and the uh, tape's uh, existence was made uh, public knowledge as part of the uh, Watergate hearings. 
and from that point on, it was a, uh, a rapid and inevitable slide down for the most powerful man in the world. Uh, and of course, this last weekend marked the uh, what would have been the 76th birthday of uh, certainly Richard Milhouse Nixon's greatest chronicler, at least uh, in a contemporary setting, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Um, Stanley Cutler, of course, has probably become the greatest scholar of the Nixon archives, and there are numerous others who've uh, written uh, enlighteningly on uh, the darkest of presidents. And uh, yeah, Hunter Thompson sort of uh, had in Richard Nixon uh, a sort of a perfect foil. Uh, they uh, reflected each other and uh, sort of uh, each played off the other's worst fears. And <laughs> of course, we're big fans of uh, the work of Hunter Thompson down here, who not only was, of course, a, a wild man, uh, the gonzo journalist, uh, heavy drinker, uh, fairly legendary and even epic uh, drug intake, although it's important to note that the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas book is uh, really should be seen as a cartoon and not as any attempt at an accurate depiction of one man's chemical intake. Uh, clearly, uh, those feats are biologically impossible. Uh, but Hunter Thompson was more than simply just a, uh, a wild party man uh, with a, a, a great sense of sarcasm. Uh, he was also uh, an incredible prose stylist. Uh, I really do believe, as someone who's studied uh, literature on a graduate level, that uh, he was a brilliant writer. Uh, and in addition to that, his grasp on the uh, nitty-gritty and the workings behind the scenes of the American political system uh, make him a really important writer uh, historically, not just aesthetically, but for uh, his sort of on you know you know on the ground look at the campaign of uh, George McGovern in 1972 in the context of what was happening in America at large in reaction to uh, Nixon's sort of non-campaign. That was uh, a year where Nixon sort of stayed off the campaign circuit, too busy being president, uh, while uh, his henchmen in the organization known unironically as Creep uh, pretty much ran the campaign for Nixon's re-election. Um, I, I really believe that uh, if you've not yet read Hunter Thompson's uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 1972, it, it really should be mandatory reading in any contemporary political science course. Um, it's very compelling read. I, in fact, read it every four years, every presidential cycle. I jump back into that book. And, of course, I learn more about that particular campaign, but it, uh, it really gives you an inside feel uh, for the madness, uh, the nonstop uh, need for momentum and cash that a political campaign in modern America requires. Uh, so I think that'll be the textbook uh, to study in uh, years to come, decades to come, even perhaps 100 uh, years from now. I think uh, Hunter Thompson's body of work will stand up as uh, not just reflective of its time, but reflective of uh, America uh, at its best and at its worst. And, of course, certainly that's something we do here on uh, Gray Matters is uh, look at both. Uh, sadly, sometimes a little bit uh, more the latter than the former uh, because, of course, we're 
hopeful that our country can always be better, that it can live up to its uh, purported uh, goals and ideals. And uh, sadly, so often we see that these uh, have been turned into empty forms of rhetoric, um, which have lost all meaning. Um, for example, the very concept of citizenship, I think, is kind of falling by the wayside. If you remember back to the George W. Bush presidency uh, after the 9-11 attacks, once the war had begun, a lot of uh, people were sort of, how do we behave now? Uh, do we sort of go into a World War II mentality? Will we be rationing food and resources? Uh, this is a pretty uh, important crisis. What to do? And the comforting words from uh, President W. were, shop as normal. Uh, and so citizenhood, citizenship, was essentially merely a matter of participation in the uh, marketplace, uh, continue to buy goods. Um, of course, sadly, we've become uh, not a nation that manufactures goods any longer. Uh, we were told that was too expensive because American workers are so fussy and fidgety, they they need the big money. They need the expensive benefits programs, which uh, back when I was a kid in the early 60s, uh, we were told uh, those are the very things that make America great, that make America strong. We have a healthy and robust middle class uh, with a strong manufacturing base. Uh, this is what makes the country great. Uh, well, a couple of decades go by and suddenly... Uh, the context of uh, Detroit as a uh, economic power changes. Admittedly, that's largely because of the uh, failure of the big three to read the change in uh, the market's demand for smaller cars, more fuel-efficient cars. Um, there's a sort of an arrogant stubbornness there to that. Uh, but the workers uh, sort of left in the lurch when the uh, previous uh, wealth turns into a liability. Uh, in fact, Detroit itself has become uh, not just a national story, but an international story. It's being talked about on the BBC, the collapse of Detroit, the failure of Detroit. Uh, no news to us who uh, live here in Michigan that uh, Detroit is a very strange kind of city. Uh, of course, most of us uh, who listen to WCBN go to Detroit pretty often because there are a lot of uh, nice events there. There's uh, concerts and performances. There's films. There's activities. There's uh, a lot of people who uh, commute back and forth between the two. Uh, Detroit is not a dead or an empty city. Uh, certainly, it's a shell of its former self. And it is, in a way, a sort of a ghost town of the mechanical age. Um the the last modern city and uh, the first really to show the complete uh, disappearance of those old models. Um, so Detroit was in decline well before the economy tanked in 2008. <clears throat> so its uh, current troubles are not a new situation, but the response to them uh, is... And I want to read to you now from uh, Paul Krugman's piece in today's New York Times um, called Detroit, the New Greece. 
Uh, when Detroit declared bankruptcy, or at least tried to, the legal situation has gotten complicated. I know that I wasn't the only economist to have a sinking feeling about the likely impact on our policy discourse. Was it going to be Greece all over again? Clearly, some people would like to see that happen. So let's get this conversation headed in the right direction before it's too late. Okay, what am I talking about? As you may recall, a few years ago, Greece plunged into fiscal crisis. This was a bad thing, but should have had limited effects on the rest of the world. The Greek economy is, after all, quite small. Actually, about one and a half times as big as the economy of metropolitan Detroit. Unfortunately, many politicians and policymakers used the Greek crisis to hijack the debate, changing the subject from job creation to fiscal rectitude. Now, the truth was that Greece was a very special case, holding few, if any, lessons for wider economic policy. And even in Greece, budget deficits were only one piece of the problem. Nevertheless, for a while, policy discourse across the Western world was completely Hellenized. Everyone was Greece, or was about to turn into Greece. And this intellectual wrong turn did huge damage to prospects for economic recovery. So now the deficit scolds have a new case to misinterpret. Never mind the repeated failure of the predicted U.S. fiscal crisis to materialize, the sharp fall in predicted U.S. debt levels, and the way much of the research that, that the scolds used to justify their scolding has been discredited. Let's obsess about municipal budgets and public pension obligations, or actually, let's not. Are Detroit's woes the leading edge of a national public pensions crisis? No. State and local pensions are indeed underfunded, with experts at Boston College putting the total shortfall at $1 trillion. But many governments are taking steps to address the shortfall. These steps aren't yet sufficient, the Boston College estimates suggest that overall pension contributions this year will be about $25 billion less than they should be. But in a $16 trillion economy, that's just not a big deal. And even if you make more pessimistic assumptions, as some but not all accountants say you should, it still isn't a big deal. So was Detroit just uniquely irresponsible? Again, no. Detroit does seem to have had especially bad governance, but for the most part, the city was just an innocent victim of market forces. What? Market forces have victims? Of course they do. After all, free market enthusiasts love to quote Joseph Schumpter about the inevitability of creative destruction. But they and their audiences invariably picture themselves as being the creative destroyers not the creatively destroyed. Well, guess what? Someone always ends up being the modern equivalent of a buggy whip producer, and it might be you. Sometimes the losers from economic change are individuals whose skills have become redundant. Sometimes they're companies serving a market niche that no longer exists. And sometimes they're whole cities that lose their place in the economic ecosystem. Decline happens. True, in Detroit's case, matters seem to have been made worse by political and social dysfunction. One consequence of this dysfunction has been a severe case of job sprawl. Within the metropolitan area, with jobs fleeing the urban core even when unemployment in greater Detroit was still rising, 
and even as other cities were seeing something of a city center revival. Fewer than a quarter of the jobs on offer in the Detroit metropolitan area lie within 10 miles of the traditional central business district. In greater Pittsburgh, another former industrial giant whose glory days have passed, the corresponding figure is more than 50%. And the relative vitality of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's core may explain why the former steel capital is showing signs of a renaissance while Detroit just keeps sinking. So by all means, let's have a serious discussion about how cities can best manage the transition when their traditional sources of competitive advantage go away. And let's also have a serious discussion about our obligations as a nation to our, those of our fellow citizens who have had the bad luck of finding themselves living and working in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because, as I said, decline happens, and some regional economies will end up shrinking, perhaps drastically, no matter what we do. The important thing is not to let the discussion get hijacked Greek-style. There are influential people out there who would like you to believe that Detroit's demise is fundamentally a tale of fiscal irresponsibility and or greedy public employees. It isn't. For the most part, it's just one of those things that happens now and then in an ever-changing economy. That's uh, Paul Krugman writing in uh, today's New York Times. There was a uh, front-page story on Detroit in the paper, including some uh, quotes from uh, workers who now face the uh, loss or uh, drastic reduction of pensions pensions that they were promised, pensions that really should be seen as a legal obligation to them, um, and of course not so comforting words from our uh, esteemed governor who just seems to go, well, um, it's going to hurt, but um, it's better to fix things. Uh, but I like uh, Krugman's tone here and his use of the word scold as a sort of uh, archaic, you know, prudish uh, old lady sort of uh, attitude that uh, some of these uh, right-wing fin uh, financial wizards uh, really seem to be because, uh, as we've talked about many times here on Gray Matters, where was all this concern for fiscal responsibility when we began the war in Iraq? Uh, we've been at war in Afghanistan for longer than any other war in American history. This is where the country's being bled dry. Uh, and as I've always said, uh, why do we need to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan for freedom when we're already free? Why can't we spend the money here at home? Uh, there are many ways that this country can uh, reorganize itself to pay ourselves to help each other. Uh, that's where jobs are in hospitals and schools. And, of course, here locally, we've had cutbacks in police and fire. Uh, well, those are the jobs that, uh, when you're a small child, those are the great heroic jobs, right? You want to be a cop. You want to be a fireman uh, because it's a good thing to do. It helps your community. And, of course, it's exciting and fun. Uh, and those jobs deserve uh, to be well-pensioned. They're dangerous jobs. Uh, teaching, uh, while not as dangerous as being a firefighter, is certainly a very stressful job. I've just finished a 15-year career as a high school teacher locally, and uh, although 
much of that time was very happily spent. Uh, it's not a good time to be a teacher in Michigan. Uh, with the decline in uh, future pensions for new teachers, what kind of quality schools will we have? Well, that doesn't really matter to the state government, uh, or at least to the Republicans in the state government, because they see the business model as the answer to all problems. Charter schools are the solution. Inefficient public schools just clearly don't work. Well, you know, they can't work when they're overburdened. Uh, nobody can deliver a quality uh, job when they're underpaid, overstressed, and shorthanded. <clears throat> and uh, when the product is uh, children who represent ostensibly our future, uh, you'd think there'd be more concern, but there's never really been anything but lip service and chin music uh, from Lansing with regards to uh, the true... Uh, needs of our children here in the state of Michigan, at least. And I had occasion uh, during last week's art fair uh, to stroll down uh, Liberty Street and uh, take in all of the nonprofit booths. That's my favorite part of art fair. And I hope you had a chance to go up and down there, too. Uh, it's great to see anybody who wants to have a table out there. WCBN used to have a table, but I think it's just a bit of a hassle for us as a radio station to do that. Uh, but lots of local political groups, religious organizations, uh, public service uh, outfits, um, representing the political parties, uh, you name it. Uh, a lot of interesting things there. And I always stop and chat with uh, whoever's manning the Republican table. I look at their pins, see if they have any Nixon pins. So speaking of Nixon, I'm going to have to get to Nixon in a moment. Uh, and the uh, articulate young man with whom I spoke uh arguing is not really the thing that you do because they're, you know, it's a pointless argument. Uh, they believe so uh, stringently in their ideology that uh, uh, you're not really going to make much headway uh, with a Kool-Aid drinker. Uh, but it's interesting to hear what they have to say. And this young man seemed convinced that, uh, as Mitt Romney said, 47% uh, of the people don't pay taxes. And why should I do anything to help them? Well, that's such an ignorant and exclusivist uh, observation that its cluelessness really speaks volumes. Uh, while it's true that a large number of American citizens, I'm going to use that word again, citizens, because we're all citizens, whether we're employed or not, whether we're one of the one percenters or not, uh, which, of course, since corporations have been deemed persons, one wonders if they are citizens. Um, interesting question, one uh, that I don't really trust the current Supreme Court to arrive at any reasonable conclusion on. Uh, but it seems to me that's kind of an important question. Whose side are you on, Mr. Corporation? Uh, well, at any rate... Uh, this idea that uh, whatever it is, 47 percent, 50 percent of Americans don't pay taxes uh, is true in that their incomes are so low, they are not obligated to pay taxes. And uh, it's easy to forget if you're living a life of luxury in financial security and the delusions that that sometimes uh, leads to uh, 
that these people aren't being taxed every step of the way throughout their days. All the food they buy is taxed, any prepared foods anyway, certainly any of the materials that they buy, their traffic costs, their the costs of getting to work, the costs of child care, uh, their payroll is taxed. They pay taxes. Uh, in fact, uh, it's easy to argue that they pay a greater share of taxes than Mr. Corporate Citizen. Uh, and of course, when I raised this uh, point to the articulate young Republican uh, that, well, corporations don't pay their fair share, he said, well, they're not really obligated to because their function is to provide jobs. They, have, out of the kindness of their hearts, give us jobs. And so since they're job creators, they shouldn't be obligated to pay taxes. Well, they make profits, and profits go above and beyond uh, the hand-to-mouth living that this so-called 50% of Americans who don't pay taxes um, don't ever in enter into a world where profits become uh, part of their economic package. Uh, you know, their only retirement option is probably what meager uh, holding Social Security will have for them. Uh, but, of course, the catch-all umbrella of, oh, socialism, it's all just socialism, and we all know socialism doesn't work. Uh, that's the old uh, Republican canard. Uh, while, of course, socialism has functioned uh, freely and effectively and efficiently for the military-industrial complex uh, throughout the latter half of the 20th century, right up till today. So socialism works for them, and socialism works for Sweden. Uh, now, I'm not, of course, uh, arguing here that we need to become socialists, but certainly uh, there are elements of that in all the major European governments. Uh, it's important to note that uh, Otto von Bismarck had a more socially progressive structure to his uh, economy than the American economy has, and that's Otto von Bismarck. Okay, that's that's a while ago. And uh, he's to, to be to the right of him is a little awkward uh, for a democratic republic. Uh, anyway, those are just some things that uh, are a part of the world we live in. <clears throat> and it's our duty to uh, contemplate them, uh, even though it sometimes brings us anxiety and pain to do so brings me a little bit of anxiety to note that there are only four minutes left, and I've not really uh, done my Nixon here that uh, I said I would do. I've just been talking about local and economic things. Um, so we may just have to postpone the uh, Nixon activities for another week. But of course, all year is a Nixon tribute down here on Gray Matters on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. So maybe I'll have time to read you just a couple of short excerpts from Stanley Cutler's book, uh, Abuse of Power. Yazoo City Calling, of course, will be up at 7 o'clock here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I believe Mick will be sitting in tonight for longtime host and actually creator of the program, Jerry Mack, uh, who's got some business to take care of tonight. As does uh, Dick Whaley, who will be rejoining me in another week or two. I believe uh, he may be back for next week's show. Um, he's been a very busy guy this summer as well. Uh, by the way, uh, one last uh, opportunity to stitch uh, together the legacies of uh, Hunter Thompson and Richard Nixon. 
Thompson's book, The Great Shark Hunt, uh, subtitled Gonzo Papers, Volume 1, Strange Tales from a Strange Time, uh, gathers together a series of magazine articles he wrote in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Um, the book is actually dedicated, as I flip here to the uh, dedication page, to Richard Milhouse Nixon, who never let me down. And take that for all it's worth. Because if you think about it, Nixon, if you expected the worst, Nixon, Nixon never really did let you down. Oh, and by the way, uh, if you, like me, and I suspect Dick Whaley as well, consider Richard Nixon to be sort of your secret favorite cartoon supervillain, <clears throat> you really have to track down the last episode, or the most recent episode, of Futurama. Wow just mind-bending satire about Saturday morning cartoons, uh, s marketing and merchandising towards children during said cartoons, and violence in those cartoons. And of course, you know, if you follow the Futurama show over the years of its uh, sort of checkered career, uh, <laughs> Nixon has appeared regularly as a character. Uh, he's a head in a jar like all the ex-presidents. And uh, there's one great episode where uh, Nixon's head, using Agnew's headless body, uh, buys the body of uh, Bender the robot. And so Nixon's head in a jar sits on the robot body. And there's a great image of a giant robot Nixon later in the episode uh, smashing down the White House saying, Who's kicking who around now? But you got to see this last episode of uh, Futurama with the Saturday morning cartoon thing. Tricky Dick and Rosemary Woods using the editing equipment to censor the excessive violence in the Saturday morning cartoons. It's uh, quite a treat. Isn't it his brain? Yeah, Nixon, Nixon's brain. severed head. Yeah, in the head in the jar. And uh, that's the way we like to think of Nixon uh, down here, a head in a jar. Well, lo and behold, Jerry Mack has uh, stepped into the room. I wasn't quite expecting that, but uh, that's uh, good news for blues lovers uh, everywhere within the reach of this signal uh, because Yazza City Calling will be coming your way shortly. We're going to get to these Nixon tape uh, excerpts next week. I've got some recordings to listen to and some to read. Uh, but until that time, uh, pay attention, think for yourself, and uh, don't... Don't believe the story that uh, Detroit is in ruins because of those expensive Detroit workers. Those people are owed that money. They worked for that money. They deserve that money. Someone screwed them out of it, uh, but uh, that's what needs to be solved here. Uh, this country wastes enough money. Air conditioning Afghanistan. We should be able to take care of our elderly and our own children. But that's just my opinion, although I suspect it might be yours, too. If not, stay tuned anyway to WCBN for all your listening pleasures, and uh, keep this one in mind, too. From the Delta to Chicago, New York to St. Louis, Memphis, Texas, Detroit, Michigan, and the California coast. Across this great land, the voice of the blues comes your way every Saturday afternoon, from 3 to 5 p.m. It's called Nothing But the Blues. And since 1975, WCBN has been the vehicle through which the true roots of the blues 
travels the highways, back roads, juke joints, inner city clubs, smoky rooms, and back porches of America right to your doorstep. Join me, Jerry Mack, for an excursion into the true American musical experience on Nothing But The Blues, Saturdays from 3 to 5 p.m., right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor.